Amen. Hey, you guys can be seated. Um, if you're wondering, again, it seems like God has continued to bring rain on us, so we, uh, this is what we've got. So we're going to go with it, we're going to roll with it. So if you're here for the first time, know this, we're glad you're here. Um, we're, you, know, you, you came at a really good time, one, because, well, this, we're a church plant, we're a brand new church, you've come at the very beginning. Uh, my family, we have, we have moved here, uh, we've, we've moved here with 30 years in mind, right? We're not three. We have come here thinking, okay, we're here for the long haul. Our heart and our passion here is to see the gospel transform lives here in the Tampa Bay area and also to the ends of the earth, all over the world. This is something that's not negotiable for us. We're going we're gonna to do whatever it takes uh, to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. We've located ourselves here for two reasons. Uh, the first is that we want to reach families. We want to do whatever we can do to reach the families in our area. And we also want to reach students and young adults. Um, something you hear us say often is that if we can reach the campus, we reach the world. We love college students. Uh, we think investing in the next generation of leaders is something that uh, is one of the best investments that we can make. Um, you know, with that said, we're also really passionate about families. We want to raise up future church planners and missionaries and disciple makers uh, out of our kids' ministry. We, we, and we think that we can do this. We believe that we can do this by pouring into the parents. We believe that healthy Godly parents produce healthy, godly kids. So we love families, we love marriages, uh, but we also love college students. And one of the best things for a college student is to be around a healthy family, right? For them to see the next generation, to see someone following Christ in the next stage of life. And let's be honest, family needs college students because date night, right? Uh, They help marriages thrive, but not only that, college students and young adults, they bring a lot of energy and zeal to what, to what, and it encourages families. So if you're, a, if you're a college student or if you're a young adult, be adopted by a new city family. Um, if you're a new city family, adopt a college student or a young adult. With that said, we're going to be in 2 Timothy again today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Um, and while you're turning there, I ha- there's a question I get asked every now and then. And it's this. Uh, and to be honest, I never really know how to answer it. Uh, they ask me, are you a runner? And I'm like, well... I say, I run, uh, and all the running magazines, they, they try to make you feel good about this answer. they like, if you, if you run, you know, you're a runner, but I don't really buy it. You know, I've got the shoes, I've got the short shorts, you know, I've got the little uh, hat that I rock, you know, but I wouldn't really label myself as a runner. You see, I was on the cross-country team when I was in high school, and I was really bad. Um, I, was, I was one person away from being labeled the caboose on the team. Um, and let's be honest, our team was more of a club than a team. We had 75 people on our team, um, and I'm not sure we ever won a meet. We had about six people that really competed every week, and the rest of us, well, we just tried to finish. Um, and I joined, one of the main reasons I joined, there's two reasons. Uh, one, they played Ultimate Frisbee every Wednesday afternoon before meet, so I thought that was fun, so I wanted to play Ultimate Frisbee, and two, they had these things called carbo loads uh, before, the, before the night of a race, and so I wanted to go to these carbo loads, and I was by far the best carbo loader on the team, um, although, you know, I wasn't the best runner in high school, being on the team taught me, taught me how to run long distances. You know, up to that point, I don't think I ever really ran further than a quarter mile, um, you know, everything I do was little short bursts of energy, uh, you know, sprint work. But I had to learn the art of learning how to breathe when you run, um, controlling your heart rate, 
uh, pacing yourself, pushing through, staying steady, getting your, your mind right, and learning how to endure. So, you know, endurance, this is something that we all need. Uh, but not just in sports, we need it also in, the, in normal life. Whether we're studying for a test, going through a difficult season, uh, parenting at work, marriages, uh, and finances, and friendship, they all require some sort of endurance. And pushing through, uh, pacing yourself, pushing through and, and to keep moving, um, it, it's all essential. Having the right diet, proper breathing, controlling your heart rate, and learning to mentally push through difficulty are ways to grow in enduring a race. But what we'll see today is how, can we, how do we endure in the Christian life? That's what we're going to look at today. How do we endure in the Christian life? And so there's something in the Christian life and what we believe that, that I think gives us endurance, what the Bible shows us gives endurance in, I, I would say, all areas of, of life. And today, we're going to see a few things that are central to the Christian faith, that fuel our endurance. We've talked about this great message we call the gospel. Uh, it's a simple message, but it's also very deep and complex. I said last week, uh, the message of the gospel, it's like a diamond. You know, every time we turn the diamond of the gospel, it continues to shimmer and shine in a new way. And today we're going to continue to turn that diamond and focus on the key elements of the gospel. And, you know, I really believe that today we're going to see some of the greatest ways that the gospel can shimmer and shine. Um, there's something we're going to see today about following Christ that's very different than every other religion. Um, something that provides endurance in ways that I believe nothing else can. Nothing else in this world can provide endurance the way that what we're going to see can. So with that said, if you have your Bibles, look at, look at chapter 2 in 2 Timothy and follow along with me. If you don't have your Bibles with, us, with, uh, with you, you can follow along on the screen. Look at verse 1. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but, but, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, and they also, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So just to catch you up again, uh, this letter is from a guy named Paul, who's in prison awaiting his death, writing this letter to a guy named Timothy. He wants to encourage in Timothy. He doesn't want the gospel to stop with Timothy. He wants it to pass through Timothy. Paul is trying to encourage and spur Timothy on so that he would be courageous for the gospel. And Paul knows that this gospel message, he knows that it's valuable, it, provide, it, it, it gives courage, it gives endurance. And with that said, we have a very simple big idea today. Here it is. The gospel endures. I'm a simple guy. I go for simple statements. The gospel endures. But more specifically, we're going to see what makes the gospel endure. What makes this gospel so valuable? That, that, that it can and it should be passed on. What is it uh, that helps the Christian find, find 
endurance and suffering and hardship. So uh, we, we say all the time the gospel, it changes everything. The gospel changes everything. It's not a one-time message. This is not a one-time message for us to believe, but this is something that we need, to, we need every day. And there's a, few, there's a few elements of the gospel that we would, I would say are feast-worthy, that we can feast on for a lifetime, that can fuel us for daily endurance. We're going to see some of those elements today. And so with that said, there's three things that we're going to see that show how the gospel endures. The gospel endures by grace, the gospel endures through faithful people, and then gospel endures in the resurrection. So point one and three, these are great truths for us to understand. These are the great elements. And the second point is a response. It's an application. So something to know about Paul's letters is often missed. And we're going to get to this in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about this. And this is something that there's, there's always something to obey, but they're always prefaced around what we believe. Commands to obey are always surrounded with proper understanding of the gospel. If we take commands to obey outside of the context of the gospel, we've missed it. You know, everywhere in the Bible, we see believe and then obey. But what often happens is that obedience is assumed before they believe. Something we see here in chapter 2 is that we need a different type of strength. We need a strength uh, that, that can give us a sense of obedience, that endures our obedience. And then, after we first believe, then it becomes, it helps us to endure in obedience, to obey. Look at verse 1. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This, this verse, this is something that can be easily passed over. But I think this verse is massively important. We need, we need to get this. Inside of this verse, there's a concept that makes Christianity different than every other religion. There's a difference, there's a distinct difference between religion and the gospel. These verses show us the difference. Paul says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Don't miss it, right? Don't miss this. I'm going to say it again. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's something that is inside of Jesus that we need. There's something in Christ that strengthens us, that provides endurance, that <laughs> that helps us to endure, and it's grace. It's grace. We are in desperate need of grace. We are in desperate need of grace, and this is our first point. The gospel endures by grace. We must get this. What does it mean to be strengthened by grace, to endure in grace? So grace is the difference between the gospel and every other religion. That's, that's what makes the gospel good news. It's grace. It's grace. So what is grace? You could be confused, oftentimes be confused by this term. Uh, my, my wife's middle name is Grace. Um, you know, my, my daughter's middle name is Grace. It's, you know, we hear grace, it, it means uh, the sense of poise or charm. Um, or you could hear this idea of grace and it means like, hey, let's pray before a meal. Let's say grace. Take all of those things out of your head. That's not what we're talking about today. Right? That's not what we're, take, take them out of your mind because grace is probably one of the most overused and least understood terms in the, in the church today. You know, many, many, this is how we're going to define grace today. Many would say grace is receiving a gift we don't deserve. Grace is receiving a gift we don't deserve. Grace can be, uh, maybe it can be better understood with its cousin, its word cousin. 
gracious. <laughs> if the word gracious, being gracious, if that's like a characteristic or an adjective, you know, if being a gracious person is being kind to others, it's being courteous, uh, what, what they think of others before themselves, cares for others, is thankful, then grace, it can also be understood in a similar vein. You know, you know maybe a story. If that doesn't help, you know, maybe a story will help. So a couple years ago, um, I had a friend tell me a story when he was a young boy. Um, you know, he, was, he was promised by his coach, he was an athlete, and he was promised by his coach, everyone on our team, if they completed their assignments, you know, if they, if they got everything turned in, they could all go to Bush Gardens, paid for by the coach. Well, he'd been working really hard, and for whatever reason, uh, he fell short on one assignment. Um, he didn't complete it. I don't know what happened, uh, but he didn't complete it. And all of his friends, they all got to go to Bush Gardens, but he did not. You know, the day they left, my friend, he went home. He was really upset, um, but he, he knew why he couldn't go because he didn't complete his assignment. But his, and his dad, his dad came home. Um, his dad saw that his son, uh, my friend, was visibly upset. And, he, and he, asked, he asked his son, he said, what happened? Why are you so upset? And, and my friend, he told, he told his dad why I was so upset. Um, and his dad said, well, son, why didn't you complete the task? Why didn't you do it? He said, I just, I just forgot one. I just, I just forgot. I wasn't thinking in his his dad was like, well, your coach is right. You know, you, you don't deserve to go to Bush Gardens, do you? You don't deserve. My, my, friend, you know, my friend, he started crying a little bit harder, saying, I know, I know. And his dad said, son, you need to learn responsibility. You need to be a man that can be trusted. If, you, if you're asked to do something, you need to do it. He was, really, he was really pressing in on him. He was really being hard on him. Uh, my friend, he started crying even harder, kind of feeling the full weight of the consequence, and then uh, his dad said to him, as, as he was in full tear, he said, you don't deserve to go to Bush Gardens, do you? You don't deserve to go to. He, he didn't, he, he, my friend, he didn't respond. He just kind of kept his head low. He said, son, answer the question. Do you deserve to go to Bush Gardens? You know, he kind of quietly sniffled a little bit. You know, his friend said, no, sir. I, d I don't deserve to go to Bush Gardens. And then he, his, his dad looked at him and said, son, do you know what grace is? My friend just looked up at his dad and said, this is grace. Go pack your bags. We're going to Bush Gardens. Right? He un he, at that point, he understood what grace was. He got something that he did not deserve. You know, getting something that he didn't earn. And that is Christianity at its core. But more importantly, Paul says, we're strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You and me, we, we, see, we messed up big time. We've, we've all sinned. We've all deserved the consequences of death. Every single day we mess up. We wrong God. But God, by grace, he gave us Jesus. We didn't deserve Jesus, but he gave us the gift of Jesus. But he gave us Jesus as a gift so that the penalty of our sin, it would be dealt with. That's the gospel. That's grace. God's grace is ultimately displayed through Jesus on the cross. We couldn't do it. We couldn't earn it. Jesus earned it for us. Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. Every other religion says it's up to you. Do more. Try harder. Try to make your God happy. Try to do more, more right than wrong. You have to be perfect, perfect. But the message of the gospel says Jesus did it for you. And when we realize what Jesus has done for us, our response is it's all grace. And then we're empowered to do the same for others. 
when we realize the the true depth of our spiritual poverty, when we realize that we have a we're spiritually bankrupt, when we realize the weight of our sin, that what we deserve, that we deserve death and hell, right? When we realize this, when we realize that we have, there's absolutely nothing we can, there's nothing we can offer, there's nothing we can do to get ourselves out of our spiritual poverty. When we realize this, the beauty of God's grace becomes so much sweeter. This is so important for us to understand. God's grace is so important for us to understand. We, we must understand the depth of our sin to understand the fullness of God's grace. Because, listen, the church is a bunch of sick people trying to help others, other, people, other sick people find the medicine of God's grace. That's the church. And this has been so freeing for me as a pastor. You know, I'm not some dude up here uh, with, with a halo around my head. You know, I'm not like a, a holy priest. I'm an imperfect sinner that realizes I'm in desperate need of daily grace from the Lord. We all are in desperate need of God's grace, right? The church is a hospital for sinners, not a hotel for saints. There's a massive difference between religion and the gospel. Religion is following a set of rules where the gospel is walking in grace. Religion says, stop sinning and you will be accepted. The gospel says, you're accepted by grace, therefore we stop sinning. This is massively important for us to grasp and understand. It affects us every day. We have to get the doctrine of the grace of God because it strengthens us, it empowers us, and it changes us. God's grace allows us to run in great freedom while also growing in us a great hatred for our sin. When we realize we don't have to seek the constant approval of God, but understand that, we're all, that He already approves of us, that He loves us, that He cares for us, that He wants what's best for us, in spite of messing up all the time, when we grasp this, we are fueled to endure, to keep running. When we mess up, we, just, we get right back up and we keep running. Let me give you a few examples of how this plays out in everyday life. You know, we need, we need grace for salvation, but we also need grace for everyday life. You know, for example, if a roommate leaves dishes out and makes you angry every time, but you can display, we display God's grace when we do the dishes anyways, right? Or how about this? When you're uh, very rude to a Chick-fil-A employee and they respond to you with a smile and they just say to you, it's my pleasure, right? That is grace in your life. They are displaying grace. Or how about in a marriage? You know, every marriage, we're all, every marriage needs grace. Two sinners coming together, we're in desperate need of grace. When you're wrong, Maybe in a marriage situation, instead of standing our ground and trying to prove our point, maybe we just sometimes we have to take the, the blow on the cheek, let it settle down, and serve our spouse, and then later we can communicate and talk about it with each other in grace. This is a daily thing for us, right? We have a daily need for Jesus. We have a daily need for grace. Every day we wake up, we have to understand our brokenness and run in our dependence on God and as we grow in our understanding of God's grace, I want, to re- I want to really reiterate this because it's really important. Because we don't abuse grace and run towards sin. When we truly understand grace, our natural progression is to hate sin. Because dependent people seek to honor their source of dependence. So I can say this. Grace is not a license to run towards sin. It's a license to run towards Jesus. 
It fuels us. It frees us to run. The doctrine of grace, it strengthens us. It changes us. It sustains us. The doctrine of grace is not just for us, but it's something so valuable that it must be passed on. It must be passed on. We need a holistic approach to gospel endurance, right? We have a, we have a vertical relationship between us and God, but we also have a horizontal relationship between us and others. So there's, there's a relationship between us and God and us and others. And we need grace for both. Right? God has shown us grace. We've received grace from God, vertically, from God. But we also need to give and receive grace to others and from others. We, because what we have received from God, we then therefore can give and receive grace from us and others. And Paul recognized this. He says, what he has heard, what he has received from God, the gospel of grace... It's not just for him, it's for others too. Look at verse 2 in chapter 2. It says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So remember over the past few weeks, Paul has been encouraging him to be courageous for the gospel. He's reminded him of the importance of the gospel, to be steadfast in the gospel. And then he just said, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... I want to entrust, I want you to entrust it to faithful men who are able to teach others also. So how does this gospel get passed on? How does the gospel endure? And that's our second point. The gospel endures through faithful people. This is God's method for his mission. This is how God has multiplied Christianity all over the world. Think about this. How did uh, this message get to us from over 2,000 years ago? How did it get from Jesus to us? It was by Jesus investing in faithful men, in a few faithful men. By people investing in people. You see, Jesus, he spent time with the crowds. He spent time, most of his time, but he spent most of his time with a few faithful men. And Paul, he did the same thing. That's how the gospel got from a hole in Rome, from a prison hole in Rome, from Paul to Tampa, Florida. Now hear, hear me on this. Jesus, he spent time with the crowds. He spent time with the crowds. He loved the masses. Both Paul and Jesus, they spent time with the masses. Jesus was regularly stopping and talking to people. He, was, he always had time for people. Paul was a people person. He was a networker. He loved people. He had lots of friends. We saw that a couple weeks ago. But both Jesus and Paul, they sifted through the masses and they invested in a few faithful people. And it wasn't just Jesus and Paul. Jesus' disciples... His other disciples did the same thing. And this is, when I first realized this, I was, I was fascinated by it. So the book of Luke and the book of Acts, right, it's written by the same person, but they were addressed to, to one person. They were both addressed to, Theoph- to Theophilus. Now, Luke took his time to write everything in the book of Luke in the first half of Acts, not just for a church, not to be published for the masses, but he took all of that time in those books to write it for one person, Theophilus. This is massively important for us to understand in the advancement of the gospel. We spend time with the masses. We seek to know many people, but for the gospel to be passed on and for the gospel to endure, it's vital that we invest in a few faithful men and women. Now, we want to show the love of Christ, as I've said, to many people, as many people as possible, but we have to continually, 
continually demonstrate it to a few that, so, that they fully, so that people can fully understand it and fully grasp it so that they can see it and they can teach others also. Be, being able to teach others is one of the highest degrees of understanding. We must teach faithful men and women, but not just for them, not just for their benefit, but we must teach them to teach others so that they can teach others. Have you ever heard the the old proverb, if uh, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. But I think think Paul, I think if Paul wrote that proverb, he probably would have said, if you teach a man to teach others how to fish, you can feed a whole village. Right? If you have someone, if, if, if you are teaching many, many people how to fish, you can feed an entire village. So look back at verse 2. This is what it says. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So check this out. Okay? Paul is teaching Timothy to teach others who are able to teach others also. There are four generations of people in there. Paul is not just thinking about Timothy. He's not even just thinking about who Timothy is teaching. Paul is thinking about, are they able to teach others? Right? He's thinking about the fourth generation. It wants to be passed on. This is so important. We've actually intentionally built this into our discipleship process here at New City, New City Church. Because intentional discipleship is one of our core values. Not only do we do this, do we get into small groups Do we pray for each other? Do we try to encourage each other? Do we try to read God's word together to hold each other accountable? But we have intentionally built this in so that every single one of us can learn how to teach others. If you're in a small discipleship group here at New City, uh, we we want you to learn how to teach others. We we have made it so it's very simple and reproducible. We've done this purposefully, right? We don't want... We don't want you to feel like you have to have a seminary degree to lead a small group of people, two or three people or five people. We want our group leaders to demonstrate two things, okay? We want our group leaders to demonstrate faithfulness, and we want, our, we want them to be able to teach others. So what does faithfulness look like? Being faithful to the gospel, that's important, right? We want to be, if, we're, if we are leading others, we want to be faithful to the gospel. We want to be faithful to grow, are, we, are you seeking to grow in your faith? Are we seeking to grow in repentance? Are we being faithful to show up? Being available. And then, are we able to teach others? Again, we're not looking for seminary professors, okay? We want to know, do you understand the gospel? Are you seeking to grow in an understanding of God's word? Now, we've given every single group, we've given, we've given us all three Basic questions for every passage. What does it say about God? What does it say about man? And what, what is, is there a truth to believe or a command to obey? Three basic questions we can ask for every single passage that we look at together. So that's three simple questions. We also have a list of more in-depth questions, ten questions that we could ask for every passage. So it's more gospel-centered. It's practical. It's easy, it's easy to follow. It's, it's, it's designed to be easily reproducible. Now, we have a process our process, it takes people who are from a brand new believer, someone who's never trusted in Christ or who has tr- who's recently trusted in Christ, and then all of a sudden they're wanting to learn how to grow, and grow as a believer. Uh, we, we, our process, hopefully, is designed to take people from an unbeliever all the way to a disciple maker, a missionary, a church planter, or a pastor. But by no means is this perfect. We're human. 
Uh, humans are complex emotional beings, but it's something, right? It's a start. God wants us to be invested in, and he wants us to invest in others. So older believers, younger believers need you to walk with them. They need you to walk with them. Younger believers, if you're new in the faith, older believers need you to walk with them. Older believers need to walk with you. It's for your benefit, and it's for theirs. Because I I really believe this. I think one of the best ways for a Christian to grow in their faith is for them to disciple and teach others. Because one of the most life-giving and encouraging and sharpening things that we can do I mean, that's just what it is. If we're not made, because we're not made to be a stagnant pond for the gospel to stop with us. We're designed to be a rushing river for the gospel to pass through us because we can't be a stagnant pond. The water of the, of the, of the rushing river, it's refreshing, right? If the, if the gospel is passing through us, if the water is passing through us, it's refreshing. It's what we need. We were made to disciple and, and train and teach others. We were made to invest in others. It's part of God's design for you. It's, God of, it's part of God's method for you to grow as a Christian. And it's how the gospel endures. This is essential to the life of our church. And if we want to be a church that's planting churches all over the world, we must be a church that disciples raises up and trains people to be faithful men and women who can teach others also. It's how the gospel gets to the ends of the earth. Reproduction and multiplication, it's a must. It's a non-negotiable for us. That's why I've said over and over again, the gospel, it can't stop with you. It has to pass through you. So we all have a responsibility to disciple others. So my question to you is, who are, you, who are your faithful people that you're entrusting with the gospel? Get in a group, right? We want to help you with this. We want to see you grow. We want to see your spouse grow, your kids grow. We want to see others around you grow. It's essential for the gospel to endure. So we've seen how the gospel, right, we've seen how it endures by grace, and we've seen how the gospel endures through faithful people. And uh, we've only covered two out of our 13 verses. So uh, don't freak out. We will not be here all day, I promise. Uh, I want to read verses 3 to 7. I'm going to tease you a little bit, and then we're going to move on. Uh, this is what Paul says. He says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And these are the three examples for faithfulness, for endurance. These are three different illustrations for how, uh, just for looking at faithful people, we've got the soldier. They keep focus on the war at hand. Uh, they don't get distracted Soldiers don't get distracted. They stay focused on the king's command. We've got, secondly, we've got the athlete. The athlete is disciplined. Uh, The athlete follows the rules. The athlete walks in godliness. And then the farmer. We've got the farmer who works hard, not doing anything glamorous. Farmers not doing anything glamorous. They put their head down. They they till. they, they, They sow. They water. And they're devoted to his work. So in short, those that endure the gospel They keep their focus on the king's commands, on the task at hand, the essentials of the gospel. They're disciplined, they walk in godliness, and they're devoted to the hard work that's required for the task at hand. You know, something to think about this, and then we're going to move on. Um, Everybody has war heroes. 
Everyone loves a great athlete, and if you're like me, you love good food. But they don't come without hard work. Discipleship is hard work. Discipleship is labor, but the reward is worth it. So that's my tease. Uh, We're actually going to cover that little section in our groups this week. So let's move on to our last point. The gospel endures in the resurrection. So follow along with me, starting in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will, all, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Brother and sister, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Why do we keep bringing up the gospel? Well, because Paul keeps bringing up the gospel. It's just sort of everything. If we don't get it right, nothing else works. It's kind of like the hinge uh, to, the, to this entire book. The gospel is the hinge to this entire book. If you think, um, think about hinges in a door, okay? Um, the, if, you, if you don't have a good hinge, if the hinges don't work, the door's not going to work, right? I mean, you can have an awesome door. You can have a beautiful, right? You can have a majestic, beautifully painted door, great design, but if the hinges don't work, the door is not a very good door, right? Everything in the rest of this letter, it's, you know, every, everything else, it's the door. We're going to look out, that's kind of the door of, of this letter. The gospel is the hinges. The gospel is the hinges. The gospel is that holds this all together. If we look at part of the door and we forget the hinges, it won't work, right? So the gospel is essential to everything we do. It provides endurance but specifically endurance and suffering, okay? There's one element of the gospel that is pointed out, and it's part of that gospel diamond that we've talked about. And if this part, if this part of the gospel is not true, Christianity is not true. Paul says elsewhere, if what we're about to talk about, if this is not true, then everything we do here is in vain. Every, every, everybody that moved here to start this church were a joke, we should be laughed at, mocked, my job, what I spend time doing, preaching and teaching, if, if, if this isn't true, it's all a lie. Every time I'm praying for one another, it's a joke, there's no point. If what we're about to see, if this is not true, you know, it's all, this is all a lie. We should just pack up and go home. But, if this is true, if it really did happen, then we should worship. We should sing and shout and clap our hands in great joy. If the gospel if the gospel hinges on everything else in Christianity, then this one truth, the truth of the resurrection, is what the entire gospel hinges on. If the resurrection did not happen, we're laboring in vain. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, everything we do is pointless. But if Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead, then what we have, it's good news. This is good news. Jesus was either God who defeated death, who died on the cross, who rose out of the grave, or he was crazy. There's no way Jesus can be merely a nice person, a wise teacher, or a prophet. He can't be one of many gods. He has to be the only God. If Jesus rose from the dead, he's clearly not a man. If Jesus rose from the dead, he must be God. And might I add that it's a historical fact and widely known that Jesus was put into a tomb 
with military guards, and those guards, they had one job. They had one job. Don't let that dead man get out of there. That was, his, that was their job. Don't let any, anybody take his body. And their lives, these military guards, their lives depended on it. And then when they opened the tomb to find him, you know, remember, there was no way in and no way out unless they went through the tomb and these guards, what did they open up and find? Not a body wrapped in linen, but the linen cloth, it was folded up nicely for them to come in and find. And just to add to the argument, nobody can find his body. To this day, people are still trying to find it. Every other religion, religious figure who walked this earth, they have a great tomb or they had a known burial ceremony. But not Jesus. His body is nowhere to be found. Why? Because he's not dead. Right? He rose from the grave. The only recorded evidence of his body after his death and crucifixion was him as a man that was alive. People touched him. They saw his hands, his pierced hands, the scars. People talked to him after he died on the cross. Jesus appeared to over 500 people after he died and was crucified in front of massive crowds. It doesn't make sense unless God really became a man in the death, in the flesh, defeated death, and then rose from the grave. It's either crazy or it's true. It's either crazy or it's true. Believing that a man rose from the dead, it requires faith. But it's not illogical. This is not illogical. I would argue that believing there is no God requires much more faith. Something had to create the world. You can't look at the details of the flower, the beauties of a butterfly, the complexity of a human, and the, mist, the depth and the mystery of the ocean and think there is no designer behind it. It was not an accident. It was designed and it was created for a purpose. So if there is a God that created the world, that created complex human beings, I don't think it's a stretch to believe that that God became a man, walked on the earth that he created, performed miracles, healed the sick, allowed the blind to see, died a criminal's death, and then rose from the dead. This is not, it's not illogical to believe that Jesus was God, especially if he rose from the dead. This is not crazy. In fact, I think it's very logical and rational. If the resurrection is true, if Jesus rose from the dead, defeated sin and death, then brother and sister, as I said earlier, we should worship and sing and shout and clap our hands and dance in great joys, and our lives cannot be the same. The resurrection demands complete surrender. If the resurrection is true, then that means that the God of the universe gave up his life so that he can know you, walk with you, guide you, help you, and lead you. If you walked into this room believing in Christ, not believing in Christ, if you walked in here not trusting in Christ today, that it really happened, that not believing that the resurrection is true, that Jesus rose from the dead, not believing that he defeated sin and death, you can begin walking with him today. He wants your life and he wants to guide you because you can trust him today. We can trust him today. I beg that you would and tell someone. We want to walk with you. We want to walk with you on this journey. If you're a Christian here today, we need to remember that Jesus wants our full surrender. Our full surrender. Our entire life. If the resurrection is true, then it demands full surrender. 
we must ask ourselves, what part of our life is saying that the resurrection is not true? What are we struggling to surrender? Maybe it's our time, our energy, our finances, pride, the way we talk about other people, maybe. Listen, Jesus died and he rose from the dead. He demands full surrender. But more specifically in this passage for today, he reminds us that because of the resurrection, we have a great reason to endure. We proclaim, and this is number three, that the gospel endures in the resurrection. But even more specifically, if the resurrection is true, then we can endure in our suffering and in our hardship. Because the resurrection motivates us and it carries us in our hardship The resurrection helps us to suffer well. It should not be surprising that we suffer and we go through hardship. Because what happens to the master also happens to the disciple. Verse 8 and 9, Paul recognizes that because of the resurrection, because of Jesus, that this is why he is going through hardship and suffering. But he is able to endure. Why? Because of verse 10. It says, therefore, I endure everything. This is really interesting. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Check this out. Okay? Paul is able to endure in suffering because he knows that it encourages the church. It encourages God's people. And it also encourages the outside world to be able to look in and see something. See something that is greater than themselves. The faithful suffering of God's people points the world to a relational God that cares for his people. This is so good. When we go through suffering and hardship and faith, when we go through it in trust, when we go through it and we're able to endure, and sometimes we're able to go through it in joy, When we suffer well, there's no doubt about it, it encourages the church. This builds up the church. Why? Because we're mimicking our maker in our suffering. When we suffer well, when we we endure well for the gospel, we're pointing our brothers and sisters to the gospel. We're pointing each other to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. We need this. Tampa needs this. Our church needs this. Because without a doubt, the truth of the resurrection, it demands it. It drives it. So with that said, I want to finish our time today um, setting up a time of communion. 